0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, will begin this morning in verse number 13. Last week, we talked about uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, a passage that focuses on marriage, where Jesus takes up the subject of divorce and, and remarriage. This week, beginning in verse number 13, there is an emphasis on children, the value of children to the kingdom, and the example that children provide for us when it comes to entering into the kingdom, and then two paragraphs that follow in verses 17 through 31, which are about finances. So on the surface, this is the the progression of our text here in chapter 10. You have a passage on marriage followed by a passage on children, followed by a passage or a couple of passages that are at least somewhat related to finances. Jesus is very much in tune with real life, with the real life issues and challenges that people are faced with. These are three inseparably bound topics that Jesus has some real wisdom for us in his, in his teaching. But I want you to note that beneath the surface... The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, all of this text together, verses 13 through 31, or I'm on the wrong page, yeah, uh, verses 13 through 31, it always helps to be on the right page in your Bible. Beneath the surface is really about grace, and I want to show you as we sort of work through this passage what I mean by that. I can remember the first few services That I came to as an as an unbeliever, forced to go by a granny that loved me and loved Jesus, and finally beginning to have some interest in what was being discussed. And here was the question that I had, and unfortunately, it was a question that was all too often unanswered. How can I become like the people around me? In other words, how can I become a Christian? The Philippian jailer asked the question in Acts chapter 16, and Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. A very straightforward answer. You have a similar question asked in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. The question that controls this whole section, the question that is the focus of these three paragraphs together, is the question asked by the rich young ruler Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that holds all of this together. I want you to bear that in mind this morning, and I want you to think about that. And what Jesus does in resolving that question is is answer with some negatives. In other words, whereas Paul said in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. Here Jesus says, let me tell you what will not save you. And he just begins to work through a few things. Now this is helpful for us, because when we hear things as straightforward as what Paul says in Acts 16, believe on the Lord and you will be saved, we have this incredible knack as human beings of distorting and contorting those simple words to fit whatever our imagined view of salvation, Christianity, discipleship, et cetera, looks like. We are making over Jesus in our own image making over the doctrines of God according to the customs of man. So Jesus helps us to guard against that by helping us to see what it is not like or what it does not mean to inherit eternal life in in a number of different ways here in our passage. I think this will become clearer as we read and study through. If you found your way to chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, I would invite you to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Verse 13 says, some people were bringing little children to him so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but with God... Because all things, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. I assure you, Jesus said, there is no one who's left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive 100 times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May the Lord bless the preaching and the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Transitioning from that passage in last week's message, verses 1 through 12 on marriage and divorce, Jesus turns immediately to the children in verses 13 and following. They're bringing children to Jesus so that He might touch them. That is, that His power, His blessing might be conferred by a touch And the disciples say, no, no, Jesus will not be bothered with these children. Aren't you glad that Jesus loves the little children of the world? And Jesus rebukes them. He says, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus says, kingdom work is is really a work that, that puts a high value on children. And and this is just a good opportunity for us to to stop and pause and, and just make some notes here for just a moment and be reminded within the ministries of Longview Point that we always need to put a priority on the children of our church and the safety of the children in our church. Here's what happens. We're doing ministry, and we're doing ministry with protocols in place and all of the checkpoints and all of the necessary things, and frankly, protocols and checkpoints and security measures can bog us down. It can be a hindrance to the streamlining of ministry sometime, but I want you to know that those protocols, those measures that have been put in place are critically important to your ministry. They may seem like a hassle or a headache. They may be the kind of things that are forgotten in the busyness of your Sunday morning or Wednesday night schedules, but they are critically important to the welfare of the children that God has entrusted to our service. This would be a good time to be reminded of the need to review your protocols and your policies, to think about gaps in uh, safety measures for the children that God has entrusted to us. Our single greatest treasure is the children that God has entrusted to us. Jesus says, in the kingdom, there's a place for the children. Bring, Bring them to me. The kingdom of God, he says, belongs to such as these. Now, there's a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago where Jesus uses children as an example of humility. In that example, Jesus brings the children before the crowd and he says, the the child is where it's at. And the purpose of the child in the illustration is that they have there no ability to repay you for your act of service. Jesus is there calling on us to be servant-minded followers of him. And in doing so, there must be a willingness to serve with no expectation of earthly return on that investment. Our investment is eternal. We are laying up treasure where moth nor rust can destroy. But here, the children serve a different point. They're they're an illustration in a little different way. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to have to get like this child. Now, most of the time, we're encouraging our children to mature, to grow up, in fact, most of the time in our day and age, we're encouraging adults to mature and to grow up. And there's a great deal of that that needs to be done. But here, Jesus says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you're going to have to get not like a mature adult, but like, but like a little child. And, here, and here's the point. I see it in, in my kids all the time. We have children in our home from seven months old to fourteen. And, and so, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so here's, here's what I notice. The older children are becoming more and more interested in fairness, more and more interested in receiving what they deserve, if, if there are blows exchanged. It's always about what he did first. This is what he deserves. This is what I deserve. But the smaller children, they really don't know anything about that. In their mind, they've not yet done anything that allows them to assume they deserve anything. In fact, if the baby has a need, he makes no effort at all to do anything to resolve the need. He just cries out as an expression of need. That's how you know he needs something. To be fed or to be changed or to be held because he's spoiled rotten. That's how you know. Jesus says, if if you want to come into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to get like the smaller children in my house. And realize that this is not about what you deserve, about fairness or about justice. In fact, you don't want that at all. In fact, you need to get like our smallest child and in your moment of need, realize that you don't have the, the spiritual, the emotional, or the physical ability to do anything about what ails you. You can only cry out and hope that your faithful father would come to you and resolve the need. Amen. Now, we have in God a better father than Brother Wade ever thought about being, who always hears our cry. And I get up in the morning and always ask Brandy how she slept last night. Because frankly, I have no idea. I go to sleep. I don't know what happens in the house. Baby cries. Mama takes care of it. But we have a God in heaven who never sleeps, who never slumbers, who always hears our cry. You see, the true disciple here, and this is in your outline, this is point number one, the true disciple understands that our sufficiency is in Christ. Jesus says, you've got to get like these children who've not yet come to a place of expecting that they've done anything whatsoever to contribute to their good standing with God or to their salvation. They're not operating under the premise that somehow, way, they've done something that has earned them favor with God. They've just cried out in the night to a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like. Now we transition to the case of the rich young ruler. And this all works together, see. Now Jesus is approached in verse 17. The Bible says he was setting out on a journey and a man ran up. Mark tells us that he knelt down before him. There is earnestness on the part of the rich young ruler. This is not a man who comes to Jesus insincerely. He comes with a legitimate question, with a question that's asked out of a sense of genuineness and sincerity. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And boy, what a question it is. Jesus responds in this way in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is already cluing us in to the fact that the rich young ruler's view of Jesus is short of what his view needs to be if he's going to enter the kingdom of God. Why do you call me good? There there is but one good. He is God. There's only one who is good. Now, he's referred to Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus is a good teacher. Make no mistake about it. But Jesus is so much more than a good teacher. He is God. The rich young ruler's yet to come to terms with that reality. He simply refers to Jesus as a good teacher, not realizing the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God's only son, that to see Jesus is to see the Father, that Jesus is the only access to the Father, that he is God incarnate, the bright radiance of God's glory. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is it. He comes and he asks him, how can I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, hey, I did all that. Violating the commandment, thou shalt not lie. It may may, may be not only that his understanding of who Jesus is, is inadequate, it may be that he's operating with an inadequate sense of what goodness looks like. Some of you are operating with an inadequate understanding of goodness. Your standard of goodness is rooted in your personal experience. What people you regard as good do, that is the standard of goodness, Or perhaps, as is most often the case, what you do is the standard of goodness. What is socially acceptable, what's normal, what doesn't draw attention, what doesn't land you in the county lockup, that is what is good. But Jesus elevates the stakes here. He says there is but one who is good, identifying the root issue, which is that the rich young ruler doesn't know that Jesus is God, And then handling, at least in part, a second issue, which is he really doesn't understand what goodness looks like. Now, here in this life, you have the freedom to lay yourself down in the ditch and to evaluate yourself against your neighbor if you wish. But before the judgment bar of God... The standard of judgment is absolute perfection defined not by what we have done or what someone else has done, but by the character of a three-time holy God. He is perfect in his righteousness. And everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus is encouraging us to see this reality. There are times when Jesus really bruises the Pharisees. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to the people, if you want to see the kingdom of God, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. You must be perfect in all your ways. He's creating for us an impossible standard so that he brings us to a place of understanding like the small child that we are left with nothing to do but to cry out in the night to a good and faithful father. We have no recourse. We do not have the ability spiritually, physically, or emotionally to deal with the problem that most ails us. Only God can meet this need. That's why I say that this whole passage, it's all about grace. It is all about grace. We are a desperate and a needy people. We must cry out to God for help. Now, here's the contrast. Here's a child who has achieved nothing in their life. They have done nothing in their life. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is comprised of such as these This is what the kingdom is about. And here is the rich, young ruler. Now, that is the epitome of the American dream. He's wealthy, he's rich. And hey, who, 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 you know, even for believers, I could find something to do with that change. You know what I mean? He's young. I. For all of my ministry and my former pastorate, I was the youngest pastor in the county. You get by with a lot because you're young. If you foul it up, they say, oh, he's young, he'll figure it out, you know. And I'm less young than I used to be. There's something to be said for youth. And he's a ruler. I mean, he's in charge. If there were ever anyone who, who could have put together a resume that would commend themselves to God, it was the rich young ruler. Jesus says, do the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, got all that worked out. And Jesus says, looking at him in verse 21, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The language of follow me. It continues to appear in this section, doesn't it? This is all about discipleship. Come and follow. Sell everything you have and then come and follow me. Now, the question that a lot of people have when you read this passage is, is Jesus requiring of all of us to sell our possessions and to give to the poor? The answer to that question is no. But Jesus has done here what he so often does so beautifully. He has identified the idol in the rich young ruler's life. Now, Jesus may not call you to sell all of your possessions in order to come and to follow after him. But what he will do through the work of his Holy Spirit is identify the idols in your life. And if you are to enter into the kingdom of God, if you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you will not do that with your idols in tow. It may be material wealth. It it, it may be some manner of immorality. There may even be for you some good things in your life, good by our assessment, that you have to lay aside in order to be a true and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's just the reality. There may be some hard decisions that have to be made in your life in order to be a follower of Christ. It may be that you have to give up a job to be a follower of Jesus, working in an area that's not wholesome or working in the midst of an unwholesome people that you simply cannot escape at this point in your progress with Christ. It may be that you have to give up some material wealth. There was a time that I was in a conversation with a young person who'd made an idol out of athletics in their life, and for them, they needed to give that up in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Whatever your idol is, whatever you are harboring in your heart, whatever you value more than Jesus, that's the idol in your life. Whatever you give your service to, that's the idol in your life. And Jesus will not play second fiddle to the idols in your heart. He just will not. Jesus has zero interest in having a part of your heart or being a part of your life. His interest is being the treasure of your heart. you got one problem, he says. The reality is he had many problems, but all of those problems were the product of this one problem, the idol of money in his heart. Nothing wrong with having money, but when money has you, then you've got a different set of issues. That's the challenge for the rich young ruler. Verse 22 says, he was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. It was just more of a price than he was willing to pay. Dear brothers, listen carefully. There are many people who hear the good news of the gospel and its call to faith and repentance. And it is simply more of a price than they are willing to pay. It's a a scary thing, isn't it? His problem was not a lack of understanding. On some level, his issue is not a lack of faith. His problem is, is the idolatry in his life. That he has fixed his eyes on earthly things. And he will not turn them away. Even to look into the face of the Savior who would die in his stead. It's really a frightening thing. It reveals to us the callousness of man's heart, how deeply entrenched we are in our sin. But it illustrates this second principle for us, that the true disciples, the true disciple understands, they know, the true disciple knows that our righteousness is in Christ. That Jesus is our source of righteousness. I've begun to think about it in these terms and I've mentioned this over the past few weeks nearing the invitation and talking about salvation but I think it helps people to understand what I mean by this. We always talk about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith not of works lest any man should boast. And that is true. But let's turn that on its head for a moment. And let me suggest to you that you are saved by works. Only they're not your works. They are the works of Jesus Christ. You are saved by Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness alone is our help in the night when we cry out to a loving Father. Christ is our righteousness. Now look at what happens in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) Now, there's probably some level of expectation on the part of the disciples that this rich young ruler has his act together. And if he can't be a part of the club, then really who can? And now you're telling me that it's hard for a rich man, the esteemed among us, to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it, before you get overly spiritual about yourself and down on the disciples here, we are almost hardwired to think in these terms. For instance, if I were to announce this morning that we, 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 are, we are planning a mission trip to Hawaii next summer, <laughs> What would your response to that be? Some of you say amen. Some of you sign up. But I'll guarantee you somebody would grumble. They're just going on a vacation. I know what they're doing over there. Because there's almost a built-in expectation that people who live in the right place, in the right kind of houses, who drive the right kind of cars, that all is well with their souls. You even think about the way we send missionaries and where we send missionaries. We don't bat an eye at sending mission teams to Honduras and Haiti and underprivileged parts of the world, even within our own state, to the Mississippi Delta. But we're not big on sending mission teams to Madison Avenue. Have you noticed that? That's not a criticism of us or the way that we do ministry. It's just a, a, a part of how we're sort of hardwired to think about missions in general. But here Jesus says that it's harder to reach the up and out than it is the down and out. Because the up and out have surrounded themselves with creature comforts that have convinced them and everyone else that all is well with their soul when inside they are filled with dead men's bones. Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. I remember sitting in a Sunday school class a few years ago and hearing a Sunday school teacher explain to me how the eye eye of a needle was a small gate in the wall around the city of Jerusalem, and you would have to unpack, and you sort of crawl the camel through. Can I tell you there's no such gate in the wall around the city of Jerusalem? And that what Jesus is describing here is an actual eye in a needle some of you probably don't even know what that looks like, but I live with Granny, you know, and Granny, she'd know how to do all that, and she would shake and tremble, but she could hit it on the first go, you know, and they'd lather that thing up and, and go with it. But it's not an easy thing to pull off. It's really, really not. Jesus says a rich man entering the kingdom of God is like taking an entire camel and fitting him through the eye of a needle. What he's saying is it's an impossible thing. Are y'all with me? Yeah, we, we come on back. The, the, the true disciple understands, they, they, they realize that our real treasure is Jesus. So as long as the rich man's affections are set on his earthly material gains, mm-hmm. it remains an impossibility that he enter the kingdom of God. That's right. For the true disciple there is the realization, there is the knowledge. We know that our treasure is not earthly, it's eternal, it's Jesus. Our treasure is Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is describing an impossibility. This may make you a little uneasy this morning, but you have, if you have change on your bedroom dresser, you are in the top few percent in terms of wealth in the world. When Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, he is talking about us. And so we rejoice in the promise of God that with God all things are possible. That although this impossible illustration has been used to demonstrate the difficulty of a rich man turning away from his material gain and unto Christ, that with God all things are possible verse 27 jesus says to them with men it is impossible but with god because all but not with god because all things are possible with god if if you are a part of the kingdom of god if if you are a believer in jesus christ if your destiny is set for heaven you are an impossibility You are something that could not happen. There is no rational answer as to why you are a part of the kingdom of God. God and God alone is to be credited with your admission into the kingdom. You are who you are because of what Jesus has done for you. In verse 28, Peter began to tell him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, I assure you, there is no one who left houses, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields, because of me and the gospel, who will not receive 100 times more, now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, "Peter, you won't be sorry that you gave it all up to come after me." I have had the unique privilege and at the same time a unique burden of being at the bedside of probably hundreds of people as they breathed their last breath and passed away. In the early years of my ministry, my first pastorate, I was a hospice chaplain, so that contributed greatly to that number. And I've heard people grieve all kinds of things on their deathbed. It really is an unusual thing for a dying person to have the wherewithal to be able to communicate what their wishes are, or how they feel about uh, their destiny, or even to communicate with the family, but it, but it does happen. And often conversations reflecting on their life are a part of the discussion. Now, I've, I've heard people grieve all kinds of things, petty decisions, big decisions, small decisions, but I have never yet met an individual Whoever grieved even a single second of service or a single red cent, they gave into the service of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you can give it all away and you'll never regret it. There's a treasure that awaits you on the other side, unmatched by anything that might be experienced in the here and now. Give it all away. You see, it's, it's not your meager acts of righteousness nor your material wealth that commend you to God. It's the absolute grace of Jesus Christ that answers the cry of a desperate child in the night with no ability whatsoever to tend to himself. He is pleased to hear our cry. This is about grace. This is it. The true disciple knows that our sufficiency is in Jesus. The true disciple knows that our righteousness is in Jesus. The true disciple knows that our treasure is in Jesus. If you're, if you're following with the outline, you might note that there are no physical action items in your outline. There are no steps for rearranging your life this week. It's simply what we hide away in our heart and what we know about God. But I want you to know that what you believe about the gospel impacts every area of your life that the way you live tomorrow will be deeply impacted by the, by what you believe about the gospel the way you've worshiped this morning how you respond in the next few moments what you do this afternoon and in days ahead will all be influenced deeply by what you believe about the gospel think for a moment about what what happens if you forget these truths if you depart from them or you simply don't believe them in the, in the context of what Jesus is describing, remember he's ramping up to his death, burial, and resurrection. He's readying the disciples for his departure. He will no longer be there as their direct supervisor in ministry except by the Spirit of God. Things are about to look very different for the disciples. In, in this context, if they, if they forget that it's all about grace they're going to they're be so puffed up in their pride, they'll never be of any use whatsoever to the advancement of the cause of the church. That's, that's the first thing that begins to settle in. If, if you have this notion that coming to faith in Jesus is about growing up or wising up or maturing or making better decisions, you have a view of the gospel that comes well short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about a radical change. It's about a new birth. It's about being born again. It's about a desperate cry in the night when we can do nothing for ourselves and God answers graciously. Pride comes. If your view is wise up, mature, grow up, you'll never be active evangelistically. I think this is a big problem for us when it comes to evangelism. There's no expectation of God doing the supernatural we can't look at a person's life who's an absolute mess and see any natural reason why things should get better so we come to the conclusion that it won't get better for them discounting that god raises the dead to life gives sight to the blind you'll be dead evangelistically if you forget these truths you'll be cold and you'll lack compassion for other people you'll see them in their despair and you'll, and you'll pound your chest and you'll think about where you are in life and you'll believe that you got there because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you've established yourself by the sweat of your brow. It'll be something that you have achieved on your own and you'll lack compassion for those who have great need. But the greatest fate that may befall you if you forget or deny these truths is the loss of your eternal soul. If salvation in your mind is something that you deserve because of who you are, because of what you've done, or because of what you have, you will be gravely disappointed when you stand before the judgment bar of a holy God. This week, um, I, I, was, I was roped into coaching baseball here, which actually does not <laughs> grieve me so much. I've coached with the kids for years, and I love it, but I really didn't expect it would happen this early on. And uh, so it did, and so anyway. And, and they do it differently here. Uh, where we come from, there's a real advantage to being there because you know everybody, and then it's really snaky, and you better not miss and let somebody pick for you. I mean, it just gets nasty. But they evaluate all the kids who go through this draft thing here. And I was thinking about this passage and thinking about that and playing and what the season might hold. And I'm and I just, I, I'm just glad that when it comes to the kingdom of God, that Jesus is not picking an all-star team. Aren't you glad for that? That he's chosen to show grace and favor to the least of these. Thank you, to take the weak things of the world to bind the strong. The foolish things to confound the wise. And I just want you to know this morning, if you're here and you're turning the question of how you can be a Christian over in your heart, if you're asking, what must I do to be saved? If you'd ask with a rich young ruler, how can I inherit eternal life? I want you to hear me when I say to you that there is a place for you in the kingdom of Jesus Praise Christ. God. The Praise promise God. of the gospel is for you, your children, your children. Your children's children, as many as the Lord our God will call, simply cry in the night like a desperate child, realizing that you've no spiritual, no emotional, no physical ability whatsoever to do anything whatsoever to resolve your most pressing need, the problem of sin, and the want for everlasting life. Cry out to Jesus. He's always faithful to answer our call.